0: Hello, friends. Uh, it's good to be with you again, even in this venue. I miss seeing you, miss hearing from you, and um, giving you a warm handshake. I'm I'm uh, missing you. And look forward to the day when we can gather again together corporately in this room, in this building, and uh, enjoy each other's fellowship. But until then, we're going to make the best of it, and uh, ask God to minister to each of you, each of us, and uh, stay connected as best we can. They say that absence makes the heart grow fonder, and I guess that's true now, isn't it? At least it is for me. Well, let me, let me begin our time together here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, by talking about the pandemic that uh, we are currently experiencing Uh, Just so you know, this isn't the first pandemic that has graced this planet. Pandemics have been fairly regular part of human history. In the 1980s, there was the global HIV AIDS pandemic. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 million people died. Prior to that pandemic, there was the Spanish flu of 1918 and it killed approximately 40 million people. We've all heard of the bubonic plague or the black plague that killed an estimated 200 million. Yes, 200 million, you heard me. That happened 500 years ago. These numbers are staggering and dwarf the death toll that we are now seeing in our current pandemic. And We're praying daily that we'll stay far below the numbers that I've just read to you. We know that government officials, medical personnel, scientists, infection uh, disease specialists are working around the clock all over the globe to create a vaccine for the coronavirus. They tell us that it's at least a year away from production and so it seems the global panic continues. I hope you have enough toilet paper to last a year. Well see, God's original design for humanity was to create joyful beings that would live in a utopian environment. Unfortunately, there are many things that interrupt that environment, that interrupt our joy that God intended for us. Presently, I think the world's joy quotient is on its way down. The global pandemic that we're facing has put a serious and universal dent in humanity's joy for good reason. This is a scary time that we're living in The din hanging over all of us is palpable. I was running errands the other day, and as I was going around to different stores, picking up different things, I observed a noticeable somberness. Maybe you have too, and many people, if not most people. I don't recall seeing anyone joking or laughing like normally I would when I was out. It seems like a a giant vacuum has sucked the joy out of our daily lives. It's in times like these that we need some kind of hope to encourage us. And I think in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, we get such hope. Let me read it for you. Philippians 2, 1 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, what wonderful words those are. Those are the kind of words that bring us hope in hopeless times. Those of us who are genuine believers and are following Christ have these truths that I just read for you uh, to bring us hope, even joy, in the midst of uncertain times. Let me go through them one at a time. There's four of them. Paul first said that we have encouragement in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have encouragement in Christ, don't we? In spite of all that's going on around us we have encouragement in Christ have we not been promised the forgiveness of our sins have we not been promised unfading inheritance have we not been promised an eternal home one day to which we will go have we not been granted freedom from guilt over our sin and failure oh friends we have encouragement in Christ and then Paul says we have comfort from God's love If there is one overriding idea that brings encouragement in difficult times, comfort in our distress, it is this, that God loves us. The God who knows the beginning from the end, who controls the paths of the stars and even the meticulous movements of viruses, that God loves us, the Bible says. Paul said right there in verse 1 of chapter 2, And since he loves us, he has given us great and precious promises of not being abandoned, not being neglected, especially in the storms of life. These are hopeful words, encouraging words. God loves us. We have encouragement in Christ. And thirdly, Paul says, we have participation with the Spirit of God. Here's another great source of encouragement, I think, in uncertain times. The Holy Spirit of God participates in every genuine believer's life and every genuine believer participates with the Holy Spirit. We participate with the Holy Spirit to accomplish the purposes of God. All the while, he participates with us, making us more like Christ. He said back in verse 6 of chapter 1 that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Not only will God complete his work in you, he'll complete his work through you. So, being in partnership with the Holy Spirit of God brings a sense of invincibility with it. Nothing will happen to you or to any one of us until God has accomplished his purposes through us. Next, Paul says in verse 1 that we have affection and sympathy. Sympathy is also translated mercy. In other New Testament places does knowing God does having this assurance that God is a loving God that he is affectionate and sympathetic towards you bring you hope and encouragement and joy does knowing that God has sympathy and mercy towards you bring joy to your soul it does me what would we do without the mercy of God God is merciful and sympathetic with us because of his affection for us. Affection and sympathy, affection and mercy. This brings hope because God cares. All of these are wonderful, true, and encouraging thoughts. Just from verse 1, I wish I could spend more time taking or talking about all these ways that a relationship with God brings hope and joy in scary times. But I have to preach to you Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-4. through four. This letter, of course, as you know, was written by Paul to a very good and healthy church in Philippi. It was one of Paul's favorite churches. This church was full of support for Paul's missionary efforts. They prayed diligently for him. They sent people to help Paul on his missionary journeys. They financially supported Paul as much as they possibly could. They were actually partners with Paul for the gospel Paul praised God for this back in chapter 1 verse 5 he said I praise God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now Paul and this church were intimately connected and they loved one another but the objective of this letter was to encourage their joy as they continued to partner in gospel ministry Paul wanted them to be joyful people as they worked side by side with Paul and with each other in bringing the good news of God's love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ to anybody who would listen. This is what the Holy Spirit wants for us, Sun Valley Church. He wants us to partner with the Holy Spirit and with one another to make sure that the gospel gets out into Yakima and beyond. As I said to begin this sermon, God wants us to be joyful people. Especially as we partner together to take the good news of Jesus Christ to our friends and neighbors. Those two things go hand in hand. Joy and partnering in the gospel. One of the surest ways to interrupt joy and undercut the gospel message is to have failing relationships between Christians. Unfortunately, this is more common than it ought to be. Last week, we looked at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, and we discovered that in order to maintain joy in the midst of challenging circumstances, we must stand firm together. We must strive side by side together for the cause of the gospel. We must shun fear together, and if necessary, we must suffer together. All these things are relational. Today, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-4 through 4, as I read it for you. So, Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or, rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Oh, friends, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to adequately cover all the wonderful truths in this passage. Maybe we'll come back to it next week or some other time. But this is, this is critical for your joy. So let's begin by looking at the problem. In your outline, if you're following along, this is point number one, and I'm calling it The pandemic. This is the problem. There is another, by the way, far more dangerous and contagious pandemic than any that I've mentioned or that the world's experienced. It has been around a long time and has an astronomical death rate. Catching this disease is as easy as breathing. In fact, almost everyone who catches this disease does so in their mother's womb. There are only three cases on record where this didn't happen. The mortality rate is 100%, and listen to this statistic, 100% of us get it. This, of course, is the pandemic of sin. Our problem dramatically affects human relationships. This pandemic is excellent at destroying relationships. We all want to think that if we just try harder to get along, we could... We could pull it off. Maybe we could get along if we just tried harder. But the Bible has a much bleaker outlook than that. The Bible describes the human condition as hopeless because of this sin pandemic. And it's not a matter of trying harder. The cause of failing relationships is found in verse 3. Look at it with me. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, Paul said. And just so you know, the seriousness of of this condition we are not immune to it in the church becoming a Christian doesn't cure the disease even this great church in Philippi had disunity issues their struggle with unity was addressed by Paul in every single chapter in this letter Paul wanted to address this issue head-on because he knew that one of the greatest enemies of joy in the Christian life is disunity in the church. Disunity, of course, comes in many different forms, but always is the result of rivalry and conceit. Rivalry rivalry is also translated selfishness. That may make more sense to you. Is there selfishness, Sun Valley Church, in any of your relationships? Maybe I should ask it this way. Do you have any relationship that doesn't include selfishness? selfishness always results in the loss of joy eliminate selfishness and you can cure any relationship difficulty this is why i use these verses philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 in all of the marriage counseling that i that i do because if you get this right if you get these verses right in your marriage you get marriage right the second culprit of our disunity in the church Is conceit some versions translate this word empty conceit or vain glory it's just another term for pride this culprit lies at the bottom of all of our sin and all of our discord this is at the epicenter of this sin pandemic pride if we didn't have prideful selfishness we wouldn't have any problems getting along with one another but we do all of us resist not being first. We want to have it our own way, and we want it whenever we want it. It comes naturally to us. This virus infects every relationship we're in, in marriage, in home, in church, at work. It infects all of our relationships. Failing relationships are a result of sin, and this robs us of joy and impedes the effectiveness of the gospel message. That's the problem that's the pandemic what's the prescription to take you to point number two well Paul writes a two-part prescription that cures the disunity that comes from prideful selfishness here's part one have common interests look at verse two complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind Part one of Paul's two-part prescription is to have common interest. We can see the worldly version of this taking place right now in our fight against the coronavirus. For the first time in years, people are actually coming together. Why? It's because we have a common interest in defeating the enemy. We are helping each other. There is an unprecedented bipartisanship between Republicans, Democrats in America. Even between international enemies, there is agreement and unity. There are some very heartwarming stories coming out of the crisis that we're facing. But here, in these four verses, Paul isn't just asking people to forget about their disagreements. He's going a step further than that. He's asking them to find common ground. Common ground. He wants them to have the same mind, the same love, being in full accord with one mind. And that common ground is Christ. I'll get to this next week or the week after, but in verse 5 it says this. Have this mind, that one mind, that one interest, that common interest in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ is the common ground. The only way that we will ever find any lasting unity and harmony in home or in church or at school or in workplace is not to try harder to be nice. No. The only way that we will find unity and harmony is if we remove ourselves from the throne and place Christ there. If we would all do that when we would then experience joyful unity and the harmony that Paul is pleading for. If Jesus is the actual Lord in our lives, in our church, in our marriages, what we would discover is that our mutual commitment to him would override personal preferences. Instead of making much of ourselves and fighting for our rights or our opinions, we would make much of Christ together with a united front. And then would come joy and effectiveness. The second part of Paul's prescription was humility. He said the first part was this idea of having a common interest found in verse 2. But the second part is humility. And that's found in verses 3 and 4. Let me read those for you. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, listen, count others more significant than yourselves. (laughs) That's countercultural, isn't it? Count others as more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul knows us. This is amazing. Pride always seeks its own interests. Paul here is contrasting humility and pride. So pride is always seeking its self-interest, but humility always seeks the interest of others. How can you be genuinely humble? And by the way, there's no difference between pride and false humility. In fact, false humility nauseates most of us. Paul says that the way to true humility is, listen, look at verse 3, to believe that others are more significant than you are. If you truly believe that, you will seek their interest before your own. You'll offer to meet their needs before you look out for your own needs. Instead of demanding your rights, you'll ask what is best for them. This makes complete sense, which is why we should train our children to think this way. It seems that there is such an emphasis in young parenting conversation on the self esteem of the child. It seems that many young families orbit around their children. This is classic thinking of a fallen sin nature. It's betrayed in the term self esteem. It ought to be others' esteem. We need to train our children to esteem others before themselves. If your life, parents, revolves around your kids, if you orbit around their lives, you're not training them to be others oriented, you're training them to be self oriented. The way that we train our children to esteem others before themselves is to model it in your home, to model it in your community, in your neighborhood, to model it at church. This is such a simple yet fundamental necessity to healthy, God-glorifying, joyful relationships. By the way, Paul's not just playing mind games here and wanting us to say the right words, parrot something, no, no. Our fallen sin nature is is quite ill when exposed, and it reveals an unsightly self. It doesn't take much effort to genuinely think of others as more significant than yourselves. How do you view yourself would be a good place to start. When you look into the mirror of the scriptures, what do you see of yourself? The Bible is very clear here, Christian friend. We don't even have to look closely you don't have to be a Bible scholar to recognize this you just have to be able to read or listen what I see when I open the pages of Scripture is a man who's born selfish I see a man who would rather exalt himself than anybody else I see someone who would rather sin than not I'm clear on the rottenness and hopelessness of my soul the Apostle Paul said and believed he was the chief of sinners he wasn't just parroting words to get attention. He actually believed that. Only understanding the cross of Christ can make me actually think this way. This is the only path to humility. To think others are more significant than myself. There are so many practical applications of this. Just, just think for a moment how this could play out in your home or in your neighborhood practice doing what is best for others make it a practice actually write down how you're going to practice this for example in your home or at church or on the road if you're driving to work let others go first don't race up to a four-way stop sign so you can be the first through the intersection as if it matters cover your mouth with your arm when you sneeze How simple is this? Don't take the closest parking stall, even if it's available. Offer to help others when they have a need. When they're unloading their cart into their car and they have a heavy object, stop and help them. Let others use your sacred stuff. Give enough money away so that you don't live selfishly. Pray more about others than you pray about yourself. These are just some practical ideas That come to mind when you spend a minute thinking about it. But there's the problem. Sinful, selfish pride. There's the prescription, the two-part prescription. Having common interest in pursuing humility. Now I want you to look back up to verse 1. And I want to show you the potency of this prescription. So we have the pandemic... We have the prescription for that pandemic. Now here's the potency behind the prescription. It's in verse 1. We're not going to skip so quickly over that verse, did you think? So how can we live and think so counterculturally as I've described from verses 2 and 3 and 4? Being committed to a common interest, being committed to pursuing humility. There's only one way that we'll be able to do this. It's not meditating more. It's not trying harder. There's no magic wand. There's no special Christian secret. In order to be able to do what I have described, what Paul has written about in verses 2, 3, and 4, requires us to understand verse 1. Here is the only reason Paul's prescription works we must know Jesus personally. You must have the Holy Spirit in your heart. He must be your Lord. And you must be committed to following Him. That's what Lord means. He's boss, not you. Look with me at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection, he begins this whole sentence by using the word if. It really is a first class conditional statement which simply means that the concept of the statement is assumed to be true for the sake of argument. A better way to maybe for us to understand what Paul's saying is to, is to switch out the word if with the word since. Since there is encouragement in Christ since there is comfort in love since there is participation in the Spirit and since there is affection and sympathy these statements are true of us who know Jesus and allow us to accomplish the things in verses 2 through 4 you see the potency Of the prescription to be humble and have a common interest is seen in these four things because they describe a person who actually has a relationship with Jesus encouragement in Christ comfort in God's love participation with the spirit and affection and sympathy Because of these four things, we can be like-minded and have the same love, being of one spirit and purpose. We can count others more significant than ourselves. We can look to each other's interests before our own. Oh, I'm I'm not saying our old nature's gonna go quietly. Not at all. Because it has a natural bent to be selfish. But because we know God and have his spirit living in us, we can and must constantly resist our natural tendencies. God has designed humans to be in loving, joyful relationships. But because of the fall, because of this pandemic I've been describing, we are in a constant battle with the flesh, with self. But in verse 1 lies the potency behind the prescription. Let me go through these quickly. And I'll end with this. First, let's look at encouragement in Christ. (laughs) Encouragement in Christ. What this means is encouragement from Christ. Did Christ encourage us concerning our love for one another? (laughs) Yeah, John 13. He commanded us to love one another. How about John 17? Did he encourage us to be unified? Yes. He prayed to the Father that we would be. So, friends, this isn't... A, a, a simply an encouragement to be in Christ it's a command we are to love one another we are to be unified and those of us who claim Christ as Lord must follow him in these matters secondly comfort from love this is one of the great sanctifying effects of marriage comfort from love and you thought marriage was about making you happy didn't you right No, it's designed by God to make you holy. This is important to understand. As Christians, we receive comfort from God's love for us, right? This is what happens when you come to Christ by faith. God's love for us actually strengthens our human relationships because we can pattern our love for others off God's love for us. This is what Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus said that our love for each other should be just like His love for us and his love for us for us is amazing sacrificial complete unconditional is your love for others in your life starting with those in your home just like Jesus's love for you I think that's a good question amazingly and thankfully God's love is not dependent on our lovability It's unconditional, it's complete, it initiates. This is the kind of loving unity Paul is after in the church. Just because someone is unlovely doesn't mean we don't have to love them. In fact, I would say that the unlovely ones are the very ones we must love to demonstrate the authenticity of our faith. We learn from scripture that Jesus doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Do you show the same kind of mercy to those who sin against you? Or do you get them back? Do you make them pay? Jesus' love is one that doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. We learn in Scripture that God forgives our sin without any strings attached. Do we offer the same kind of grace to those who have sinned against us? This is what Paul meant when he said comfort from love. Thirdly, we see that there's this gospel participation. That word participation we're familiar with. We we talked about it earlier in this sermon series. It's the word koinonia. It's translated fellowship in many different places. But he says participation in the spirit. The partnership and fellowship that Paul is describing here in verse 1 exists in Christians because God created it. It exists not because we have things in common in a worldly sense, it's because we have things in common in a spiritual sense. We are mutually connected to Christ and hence to each other. In John chapter, first John rather chapter one, verse three, the Apostle John speaks of this intimacy of Christian fellowship. Let me read it for you. First John one, three. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, his rather His Son, Jesus Christ. This basically means that because we have a vertical relationship and fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, we also have a horizontal relationship with each other. Because of our relationship with Christ, we are in fellowship with each other. This is very important to understand, Sun Valley Church. If you have Christians either inside your home or outside your home with whom you are struggling, then you not only have a problem with them, you have a problem with God. Your struggling fellowship with others is an indicator of your struggling relationship with God. Even if you think that the damaged relationship is their fault, it remains on your plate to do something about it. Fourthly, affection and sympathy. There to conclude verse 1. Paul is appealing to the believer's experience of the mercy of God. If you are a Christian, then you have experienced his sympathy. That word sympathy simply means mercy. We all deserve a lot worse, but instead, because of Jesus Christ and his work when he was on this planet, his perfect life and sacrificial death, we have received God's favor. We've received his mercy. Are you a follower of Christ Is he your Lord and Savior? If so, then you know his sympathy. You know his mercy. You have a personal experience with God's sympathy, which means you can demonstrate that sympathy, that mercy, to those in your life who don't deserve it. Affection is the motivator of sympathy. The reason God has mercy on you and on me is because of his affection towards us. Affection is something that wells up within our heart and minds towards people that we love. Sympathy is what you show towards these people that we love. Mercy. So why is Paul writing all of this? Is it just so his friends can be happy? Or is there a greater purpose behind this whole idea here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4? Well, I think there's a great purpose that goes beyond just his desire to have happy friends. I think Paul would give this answer that we must seek healthy Christian relationships, not only because our joy depends on it, but because joyful Christian relationships are the power behind an effective gospel witness. And both of these things, our joy and an effective gospel witness, bring glory to God. That's why Paul included that here. That's why the Holy Spirit inspired him to write it. Friends, the coronavirus is an opportunity to practice our common interests in Christ with humility. We have an unprecedented opportunity to prefer one another. We can show the world what it means to be truly Christian. Let's do this, friends. Let's take this advantage, this opportunity that God has given us during this pandemic that we have with the coronavirus. Let's be Christians, Sun Valley Church. Pray with me as we close together. Father in heaven, we thank you that We've been able to come into your presence, even though we're separated by miles, Um, but around this video, we're able to come into your presence, receive instruction from your Holy Spirit that encourages our Christian life to bring glory to you and joy to us. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would work out these practical implications in our lives on a daily basis. That we we would be a people who are committed to a common interest, a common purpose with humility, based on the power of having a relationship with Jesus Christ, a personal relationship that affects everything we do and think. God, work in our lives. Work through Sun Valley Church in this critical moment in the history of Yakima. Use us to bring glory to your name and joy to our people. Grow our church even when we can't meet God. Do this, please, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.